All right, you are listening to Left of the Projector. I'm your host, Evan. And this week, we will be talking about the 2019 Academy Award winning film, Parasite. And I'm joined by Nick, Steve, and Levi uh, from the Intervention Podcast. Thank you all for joining. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, glad to be here, man. Yep, yep. We've been uh, chatting about this movie for a bit now. And well, I guess before we jump in, um, do you want to let anyone, everyone know a bit about your podcast and where they can find you? Sure. Yeah, so the Intervention Podcast really started between Steve and I to kind of cover stochastically, I would say, the U.S. and Anglo empire, um, the history of that. Levi has since joined us really as part of a project to kind of cover the relationship of Israel and the U.S. and British empires. So, you know, we, we do a mix of like history, current events, some reactor stuff with, uh, you know, other podcasts that are kind of in this little circle we've got forming online. So <laughs> um, that's kind of what we do. Awesome. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's kind of how we ended up getting connected through a couple other podcasts that I think were kind of part of this little circle. So I'm glad we finally were able to to do an episode together. But like I said, we're doing uh, talking about Parasite. Everyone's probably familiar with this movie. It got lots of critical acclaim with lots of uh, fanfare, Academy Awards and, and the like. But I think part of this movie, which takes place in uh, Seoul, South Korea, that I think we should maybe talk about a little bit before we dive into the plot and a lot of the themes, which everyone's probably aware of the class structure of the two families within this movie, but taking place in South Korea, there is a bit of history that I think we should maybe lay out a little bit. I know Nick, um, you had kind of put some couple thoughts together. We can also, I'll, you know, anyone else can obviously jump in and add additional context, but I think it'll give us some sense of what this area is like, because most people don't realize what South Korea is about and kind of the formation people kind of just think of like North Korea, bad South Korea, good. And that's kind of like the, the binary that most people think of. And so, um, that's not the case. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, and when we got talking about it, Evan, I think we wanted to try to figure out how we could kind of meld like the approach of our podcast in terms of centering like U S imperialism with this. Right. And, you know, obviously the movie is a cultural commentary, a societal commentary on South Korea. But if you know anything about the history of the Korean peninsula, you know, through the 1900s and up to now, it's hard to kind of dismiss the influence of the U.S. on South Korean society. Right. So, I mean, just quickly, uh, and we don't want to trivialize, you know, South Koreans own society and culture, but it's again, after post-world, post-World War II, especially, um, you have to look at what the U.S. did, right? So just in general, I mean, prior to uh, World War II and during like the Japanese occupation, which, you know, actually was initiated before World War II, um, Korea, both North and South, was largely agrarian like a pretty feudal society, right? And obviously the ideas of Marx, Lenin are on the rise. Um, and there's this group of Korean communists who are promising, you know, land reform, education, self-determination, all that evil shit that communists typically, you know, go after when they're seeking to take power for the people, right? Um, so, you know, they're pretty popular for this. And on top of that, they also presented like the absolute stiffest resistance to Japanese imperialism, right? Waging largely a guerrilla war in the North and even in China 
um, with Kim Il-sung at the head of the resistance for many years, right? But of course, you know, post-World War II, um, the U.S. drops the bombs on Japan and establishes kind of a foothold in Korea, really in an effort to check the influence of a burgeoning socialist state in China, the Soviet Union, and communism in general on the Korean Peninsula, right? So, you know, they do what they always do. They, you know, install these Queensland leaders uh, like Sigmund Rhee, Park Chung-hae, who comes later, right? And they absolutely come in and they decimate all the left-wing opposition in the South, fully supported by the U.S. And this is going on during the Korean War and after, right? So you have to look at this and say, <laughs> the society would have looked different had the U.S. not intervened, right? Because the communists were extremely popular, both in the North and in the South, right? And just this continues through this day in terms of the U.S.'s influence. You know, over time, we've established 15 military bases there. Um, from 1946 to 1976, the U.S. provided approximately $12.6 in economic aid to South Korea. So it's like an ongoing concern. Um, and I think a lot of that has kind of led to this led to the U.S. kind of forming South Korea in its own image in its some in its own in some ways. You know, um, it's kind of like viewed as like this tech hub, kind of like this, you know, if you read something like The Economist or any bourgeois newspaper, you know, the, South Korea is always spotlighted as like this kind of paragon of re- virtue next to this like really hostile neighbor, right, in the DPRK. And it's because they conform with the imperialist system. Um, but the U.S. does a lot to maintain that, right? And, you know, I think this movie, in a way, kind of shows it. It just shows the impacts of that, um, of the society that was developed with kind of the U.S. leading the charge in a lot of ways. Yeah. And one thing. Oh, go ahead, Levi. I was actually going to say to build on that in terms of the history around this moment, it's important to remember that pre-world, especially pre-World War II, there was no predestination that the United States ever had to even interact with this part of the world. And then on top of that, there was no predestination that the United States had to support the right-wing forces in this part of the world. Uh, these communist forces actually had relatively uh, positive views of the United States um, on certain levels, especially in places like Vietnam, um, Cambodia, Korea, and even parts of the Communist Party in China until they, you know, showed their true face with Truman and his policy of intervention and uh, the harsh realities of nonstop war. And just to build off of what Nick was saying in terms of this support, this measuring, this uh, building up of South Korea is very expensive for the United States. This is not a pet project or a small project. This is core to their imperial mission. This is not an aside. Yeah, they needed to build with Japan basically that they completely decimated with dropping several bombs on them. They needed to build a partner in quotation marks in that part of the globe. And it wasn't going to be Vietnam and it wasn't going to be North Korea. It certainly wasn't going to be China. So they needed this trading partner. And yeah, like you said, they, they spent billions of dollars on this project. They had one thing we, I didn't realize, 400,000 troops from South Korea were fought at least at some point of time in the Vietnam War. So that's quite the partnership. I think lays like a good piece to the movie Parasite. And another thing just I'll finally add is for people who don't know in South Korea, there's also a requirement to uh, serve in the military. So it's re- required service. 
And I think that does play a part, a couple of moments in this movie of having to serve and, you know, having to put your education on hold slightly. And I think it, uh, obviously that's requirement, whether you're rich or poor, but I think it impacts poor people or at least the middle class and below working class far more, uh, far greater. Um, but kind of the beginning of this, um, this movie is we're kind of shown the Kim family and it's them living in a basement apartment, barely able to, you know, they're trying to get Wi-Fi signal to use WhatsApp. And they're really showing you what a very poor family is living like in, you know, a, a metropolis of supposed wealth that is, you know, South Korea and Seoul. So I feel like it, it gives you like a pretty good framing initially of one of the two families you're going to see throughout the film. Yeah. And even in the very beginning there, he seems to grasp this contradiction of, you know, they're the main characters and you're supposed to root for them, but you very quickly learn that they're unscrupulous. Like as they're folding all the pizza boxes, you sort of see them and you think like, wow, they're, they're like really trying, they're really downtrodden. But then you see them immediately just like getting, was it fumigated? And it, it just seems so deeply pathetic and sad that it, it's just so hard to root for them through the whole movie. Yeah. And, I mean, I, we'll probably talk about this as we go through it, but I, I don't know that the director wants you to root for them either. I think he makes everybody somewhat sympathetic, right? I mean, he, he tries to paint everybody as I mean, they all have good and bad qualities. So I, in, in some way, so I, I don't know that he really wants you to root for them. I, like you said, they're the main character, but um, it's, it's interesting if, if he really does want you to root for them. Yeah, and and uh, and just as an aside, uh, the director Bong Joon Ho, uh, when I was kind of looking briefly into kind of his like background, he grew up, you know, not exactly very wealthy. When he was in uh, school after his required military service, he was living, you know, could barely get by, and kind of caught a break to participate in some, you know, some films. You know, obviously getting even further breaks to, you know, then you know, write and direct in, in, in movies and has made a quite a big name for himself, but he clearly is painting the picture of, we can, you know, we can probably debate like what, whether what he was actually aiming for in the movie, but he's clearly trying to show that it's the, like the wealth disparity just off the bat within, you know, Korea and South Korea. And so I think he does a, he succeeds in that. Yeah. So one part of the Kim family that I, didn't catch until the second time I read through it is that they have this sort of petite bourgeois process to them. Cause the one they tried to start a small cake shop and it ends up failing. And apparently that was like a big cultural touchstone in South Korea that these Taiwanese cake shops popped up and overpopulated and then immediately tanked. And this is something that the Kim family, uh, and are we doing spoilers on this? Oh yeah, yeah, please. That the Kim family and, uh, couldn't say, and Mun Kwang also that's how they lost all of their money was by opening a Taiwanese cake shop and I just thought that was really interesting because it's not something he focuses on but it's clearly something that's pivotal to both of their stories I mean that's kind of like a feature too of you know American capitalism too is just the the idea of like oh you know you can pull your up by yourself by the bootstrap start a business and build something you know and, and you'll be rich and wealthy or 
richer or whatever it is, but like the, the, the statistics of actually succeeding in any of those things is, is very low. I don't know percentages anymore of how many businesses fail, but it's, it's most of them. Yeah. yeah. And it's rich people that say you can pull yourself up by the bootstrap, the people that can afford to make mistakes, right? If you're someone, if, if you're working class or poor and you're trying to start a business and you fail, that's you ruined for life. Whereas some rich guy can fail 15 times and still be okay. Yeah. yeah. And I just like, we t- when we talk about kind of like the parallels of these two hyper-capitalist societies, you know, I, I, this did this film did resonate well over here. And it's I, I think it's really obvious why that's the case, right? Like you see the small businesses failing, right? You see like basically participation in like this gig economy, right? Like just taking odd jobs where they can, creating, you know, conditions of precarity. And Evan, I think we were talking about a little bit earlier before we started recording, but, you know, also breeding this kind of animosity, um, within the class, right? Because like these pizza, the, the people that are running the pizza shop in one of those scenes where they're actually putting these together, they're barely making it too, right? But there's like this level of tension that, you know, comes back up again once we get actually into the park's house, et cetera, et cetera, where like you would think, oh, you know, we should have some common ground here because we're all living through this miserable existence, but I need to survive. I need to eat. You know, I'm living literally below the street at this point in time, so... <laughs> Yeah, and they can they can barely afford food. And I think I think like the pivotal scene that kind of sets off before you meet the uh, the Park family is uh, a friend of the. So just as a an aside, a lot of the characters obviously have you know South Korean or Korean names. For some of them, I think it might help, especially for the Kim family, are all referred to by English names. So Kevin, who is the son of the Kim family, he meets one of his old friends from I guess from school. And he kind of gives him this lead or this tip to tutor English or tutor, you know, uh, English studies to a, you know, a rich family, the parks. And it really is like the, you can almost look at it in the sense that it was kind of like the, I don't want to say like winning the lottery, but he, he obviously they <laughs> took it to the next step through their, some of their deceptions and their, the way that they acted, but it was sort of like a, a break that they needed. Um, at least for their family to to essentially even have any food to eat, because before that they were, you know, were struggling. Yeah, and I, I think to focus on, I think his name is Kunsi. The or no wait, Min Hook, the Kevin's friend that you yeah. said from school. I actually couldn't pin down on where they were friends from because this guy is clearly from a a higher class family. And it talks about his dad is the one that collects all the viewing stones. Maybe they met in the military. That's what I thought, but I wasn't sure. It's it's just, it's very clear that he's definitely of a higher class, even though they've made a connection some point past in the, in the story that is never really uh, given much light. And he seems to know like the mother too. Like when they meet them in their house, it seems like they're like, they go back. Yeah. They're clearly childhood friends of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. But his and character viewing, is important. Like you don't, he's like one scene or two scenes with him. But I think it's a an interesting character. Like, and he's the character that provides the stone that's used uh, symbolically throughout the movie. Yes, yeah, that stone was interesting. I I didn't didn't know much about it. I briefly looked it up. Um, 
but they're called like a landscaping stone. And apparently they've been going back, I think going back to like the 13, the 1300s that they've been using these. And it's kind of a, uh, an attractively attractive stone that you would kind of display. And obviously it's a depiction or those who could afford it would be wealthy. If you have a, a garden or someplace to display these, you're obviously handing him wealth. And one interesting thing that I saw about the stone, I think I wrote, I think I didn't get this idea, but the idea was like that the rock kind of symbolized like a dream, like that you could kind of attain to or obtain, attain, attain. Um, like he's kind of passing this off to, to him, Kevin, like, Oh, this is kind of like a way, you know, your key to the future. Or I, I don't know. It's clearly symbolic, yeah. symbolic of something. I think you could actually draw a through line through the whole movie, just following where the stone is and the sort of actions that it triggers. Which I think it's to your point that you were making in the chat that this character who's only physically in two scenes in the whole movie really can be considered a central figure in spite of that. Yeah, he definitely does. And, and then the, like the, he gives them the stone. I think he goes to visit the, the Kim family at their house when I think we all might've wrote down this line, but the mother, when she sees the stone, she's like, it would be better if you like brought us some food because they're literally like, can't eat. Like you can't eat a stone. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's, it's just to, to me, like, and I think it ties into that. It kind of represents like this, like the, idealist versus the material kind of thing, right? Because it's like supposed to be like this good luck symbol, right? Or like this kind of totem that will, you know, bring wealth, right? But that's just an idea. It's kind of like metaphysical, right? And even when they're trying to use it uh, at one point, I think to potentially bludgeon other members of the working class, it gets kind of weaponized against that against Kevin at the end of the movie, right? So it's just like there's nothing, you know, material reality still kind of hits home, even if you're carrying this like kind of idealism with you. I mean, that's kind of how I looked at it. Yeah, that's true. And one other thing that I, I noted too, I know we kind of maybe went past that the kind of the scene with the childhood friend is, and I guess that maybe I don't know the answer to this in South Korea is, you know, I assume university is not free. Like it is in most of like Western Europe. Does anyone know? I don't think so because he says, doesn't he say like you've passed the entrance exam four times and it, it's kind of insinuated. They can't afford to send their kids to school. Right. That's, that was my inclination too, but I, and I forgot to look it up, but that makes sense, right? Like he, he's smart, but he can't get into school because they can't, pay for it which yeah that's kind of a he, he could have like this path but it's not available to him that hits on one of like the core concepts in the movie is that all of these characters if you look at the services they're providing uh maybe jessica aside they do actually seem to be providing very useful positive services to this family's life even if it's on negative terms yeah that's true. I mean, I guess the, all the other of them, you know, none of them really are deceitful in like him teaching Kevin, teaching the daughter English and the father being the chauffeur and the, you know, the house manager or whatever. They're all services. They just obtain their roles through unethical in quotations means. Right. Well, and that's why, and maybe we can come back to this later, but it's something that I was thinking about. It's like the title of the movie, right? Parasite. Like, I think like the way it's kind of portrayed and the way it goes is like, well, these, the Kim family are the parasites, right? Because they're kind of like sucking wealth 
off out of like the park family, right. Through like these kind of deceptive means and everything like that. But like, who's the parasite, you know what I mean? Like we, we, with a class analysis, you know, we know that this, you know, this family can't function basically without the services of another, right. As like Mr. Park, who is, you know, I don't know if he's a CEO, but he's some top level executive at like a tech firm in South Korea. Right. But they're relying on, you know, one, you know, you don't see this process, but you know, the wealth of the working class to kind of fund this lifestyle too, but then just to even make their home function, they're requiring kind of the labor, the domestic labor just to kind of get around take care of their kids. Right. So, I, I mean, I was just always asking like, who, who's the parasite, you know? Yeah, no, that's true. I, I think that I saw something that the director, like someone would say like, Oh, like a, like there's only one parasite, like in your body or something. And someone, and he, or someone asked him that question. He's like, Oh no, there can be multiple parasites implying that all of the members of the Kim family are in fact parasites. But I think that you're right. That, you know, he's working for a large tech company making, you know, probably millions of dollars. And so, and, and preventing this other family from like getting food, their basic needs, shelter, you know, so yeah, who is the parasite? Yeah. And I think at one point the wife call or the park wife calls the husband a famous tech CEO when talking about the underpants that are found in the back of the Mercedes saying, you know, what are they going to say about us on Twitter? Oh, right. So there's some aspect that he's actually a public persona, at least enough to worry about being in some sort of minute scandal with the help. Yeah. I think I, I remember what you mentioned that I didn't, I didn't mention or notice the CEO part, but it would make sense given like the, their home, which I guess is sort of like the next thing you you see is you have Kevin going to the park's house, you know, like up the hill, kind of to the top That's of the mountain, right? Like the the kind of the verticality of the shots are very important, right? Yes the the parks live at this top of this hill in this beautiful home with a massive yard, a yard that's hundred times bigger than the Kim's and like apartment, you know, which is kind of at the bottom of the city kind of the showing, I mean, clearly the, 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 the display of like the class, the two classes is very obvious, you know, very on the nose, but I think it, it's, it's helpful to, you know, some people who might not have this concept in their head and he goes there and you just immediately see like, there's a camera, he's coming through like a little hallway and he sees this house and he's just blown away. And, and I wonder at first is, it seems like Jessica seemed to have a lot of the ideas and kind of how to scam his way in. She's like forging a document from a university to get him in there. But I wonder if like the wheels were turning in his head as soon as he got there of like, how, what can I do? How can I get more from the situation? Or if it kind of, I don't know. Well, well they definitely were because doesn't it, I think you can see the wheels start turning when, the wife, the park wife mentions that the son is like an artist, right? And he's like this, right. this brilliant talent, right? And then you can see him start thinking about, he starts asking questions and then he's like, oh, I, I know somebody like my cousin's friend, right? What he's got his sister in mind. Right. That's true. He does. It's very, it, it is very quick that he does that. 
Yeah, and uh, there's so I read the script the second time. I can get into my horrible viewing experience the first time if anybody cares. But um, in the script, it actually gives stage direction and the scene where Ki Jung and Ki Woo, Kevin and Jessica, are sort of rehearsing what they're going to say to the mother. Jessica sings this song, Jessica, only child, Chicago, Illinois. My classmate, Jin Mu, is cousin of Kevin. And then underneath that, it says she sings her bio to the tune of a catchy Korean oldie. Ki Woo joins. Silly, ridiculous. But you can sense there is a real sibling bond here. So the director really wants to push on us that this family is really deeply connected. I don't know what that says about the family, but that's clearly part of this, that they're thinking in sort of one mind or one hive. But I mean, is it hard to, I mean, you can, you can, I guess you could, you could say that they were being deceitful, but at the same time, if that was like a slightly richer family or if they had gotten away with it, you'd be like, Oh, they're just like hustling to, you know, make their, you know, make ends meet or like they're hustling another job to like make it. Whereas, you know, they're, they're doing this to some rich family. So it's, it's bad. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I I think I see your point, but I also want to stress the fact that he really wants to make this family seem very close. Like the the stuff that they share with each other is very, uh, I mean, I've never cried and talked about my dreams with my mother. Um, I don't know how common that is in South Korea, uh, but that's like a pivotal scene is that they're incredibly open and honest with each other, even as they're constantly lying to everyone else around them. Yeah. I wonder if that's part, I don't know. Again, I don't, I don't know the, the, if that's like a cultural piece, but I wonder if part of the fact that they're, they obviously are very, they don't have very much money. They live in very tight quarters. It's not unclear how long they have. I, mean, I guess you would just become close to your family because you're so close to your family. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and they're working together to eat. Like, I don't know. And it just seems like the bond is different between the Park family. Like, there's a lot of tension, right? Like, even when um, the, the Kim father and mother, like, they almost like, it seems like they're going to start fighting at one point, like when they're all in the house. Right. When he says, she, she tells him like to basically like sack up and like do something about the situation. And it looks like they're going to fight, but then they actually start laughing. There's like a lot of genuine love that you don't see. And I think that's just a virtue of experience. You know what I mean? Like they're all clawing together where, I mean, I think the wealth in the Park family is just creating more alienation than even exists. Like you have to bring somebody in to teach your kid to do this. Whereas in the Kim family, it's like if you have to learn a skill, they're taking that upon themselves. They can't afford to hire somebody else to come in and do it, you know? It's a different life experience of survival. Yeah. And like Mr. Kim asks Mr. Park, like on there's at least two occasions where he brings up like, do you love your wife or... So, I mean, you know, he obviously doesn't think their relationship is as close. But the other, I, I thought another interesting thing about the families are like the Park family are obviously do- dominated by the father, right? And, but the Kim family, like the daughter is, as I think Levi kind of insinuated, seems to be maybe the more intelligent, like in the driving force behind it. And there's also like a lot of insinuations that the mother is the stronger of the two parental and of the parental unit. Like, I think there's pictures of her like being a shot put champion. And again, with that like mock fight, they they make jokes like 
he'd get his ass kicked if he had actually tried to do anything. And she kind of seems to be the more domineering one. I mean, I don't know if it's intentional by the director, but there, there seemed to be a distinction between the two families there. And there's also a moment too, I think when they're, I don't think, I think it's maybe before the mother and father, the Kim parents have started to work there. I think they, one of the parents mentions how Jessica like would be a, I think she even, I think the translation was like a con man, like a con artist or something like that. And clearly they understand that she is very capable to, to do this. And they're not just supporting her, but they're like bouncing ideas off of each other. Like, right. They're like, Oh, we're going to change this little script. And so it's a very tight knit family. Yeah. I think that gets to the point that I was trying to make earlier that they all seem to be completely competent at the acts that they're doing. It's just that they seem to be completely capable as con artists on top of everything else. Now the services they're providing are real services in this culture. Yeah. Which I think, um, I guess going back to, this is a point where Kevin has now, you know, met the daughter to become like the English tutor and has now started talking up her sister becoming like the art tutor, specialist teacher, I think what art therapy, I think. And he's also clearly saying like, oh, it's very expensive. Like everything, they they know the wealth of this family. And so they know what they can get. Like they, yeah. they've clearly, they've sized them up. Just look at that fucking house. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the, uh, the, I don't know, the, what was I going to say? Um, and the other thing too, about that scandal you mentioned, Levi, with like the, like they, they plot the ways to eliminate the, like the rest of the, the, so there's already a show for it that they need to get rid of. And the plan was to, she takes off her panties in the, in like the fancy Mercedes that they drive them around in. And I think it's the way that they like the, the, the park family act afterwards and sort of like being very hush-hush, they seem very, I wrote in my notes, I wrote like kind of repressed, whereas it seems like the, the Kim family is very much open with each other. I don't know. I don't know if that, how that plays into it, but I, I noticed that. Yeah. Whereas like, there is like that, there's that scene when the parks are on the couch together while they're all hiding under the table. Right. And it just seems like, I mean, they're not even, I mean, they're really just getting to first base. Right. <laughs> it just seems like a lot of like, I think sexual repression. Right. Whereas like maybe something like that, like, Oh, I threw my panties under the thing where that wouldn't be, you know, discussed in the park house. Like the Kims would think, Oh, what great idea. You know what I mean? And it's just like, there's no kind of ta- There's not that same level of taboo. Right. And that's a, I think it's a class thing. You know, I don't know where you went to high school, but that was not first base at my high school. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought maybe I that whole I mean, what was going on, but <laughs> I mean, and there's that part where they've all been hired, right? And like, Mister Kim, like, subtly like grabs his wife's ass, right? Like, they're much more like unrepressed and, and much more willing to show affection. It seems like, yeah, I, I think. Um, the park father even tells her to go get the cheap, disgusting underwear. And it's just like ripping in on the fact that this is so taboo that somebody would be wearing this underwear and it really gets him off, which I mean, I'm not kink shaming anybody here, but 
it's done while the person who actually owns that underwear is directly underneath them, correct? Or <laughs> underneath like an ottoman right next to them. Yeah. And it's right after he's ripped into Mr. Kim as well. So it's this sort of repression and honesty behind closed doors that's sort of all coming out into the open at once. And they're all being deeply shamed for who they are without any ability to change that. I believe it's Mr. Kim's literal smell is what they're disgusted by. Something he has no control over. Yeah. I noted that later, but one, one thing or the other, the other, like, so the, so I guess we talked about the, the English shooter was already gone. They created the art, our art therapist got rid of the show for, but I think like the most elaborate and most insane one is the P like throwing peach fuzz onto like the, like the, the housekeeper or whatever you want to call her, the house manager or whatever. But that is like some elaborate shit. And I was thinking like, they probably wouldn't have been able to afford those peaches like a month before. (laughs) Now they've, they're using their money that they've now accumulated to buy peaches. I don't know. I don't, maybe I don't know. I thought she still buy. stole it though. Yeah, I was gonna say. I think she stole it. Oh, I think, you're right. They I think she shows her walking out like into like the the, the street vendor, and she just kind of grabs it. So even if she did have the money, she still pilfered it. Jessica. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I, I must. I didn't. I didn't catch that. But yeah. So they they like everything is so like carefully. You know the putting the peach onto her neck, being at the hospital to like capture, like the father's like taking a selfie. Like, you know, I don't know like about your parents, but like, I don't think my parents can like take like a photo or a selfie. And he's like masterfully taking the picture of himself at the doctor, (laughs) which I thought was pretty. The hot sauce, the hot sauce on the napkin. Oh, the hot sauce that comes from the pizza place from the first scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's so weird because it's like, (sighs) it creates that kind of dichotomy of like where you really feel bad for this house, this housekeeper, like not as bad as you're going to feel about her, but like, you're still kind of, I still kind of have that tension of rooting for them because it's like their help. They're getting themselves, you know, going. And but like with the housekeeper, it's like, whereas, I mean, I don't think she really did anything that was kind of objectionable with respect to the Kims, right? Like, I think I didn't feel as bad for like the taxi driver because that situation was kind of set up because he was starting to kind of like make unwanted advances on Jessica. Right. So it was like, ah, oh, he kind of seems like a dirt bag. Screw him. You know what I mean? But like, I don't know. In, in the case of the housekeeper, it's like, I didn't have that same effect where it was like, ah, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't feel as good about this one, even though you're still kind of rooting for them. You know what I mean? I don't, it's, it's a weird uh, kind of tension. So it's interesting. The park father actually talks about the, the only flaw with the housekeeper, which means a lot more after you've watched the movie once is that she was a big eater that she ate almost twice as much as any normal person. Uh, which of course we realize later is because she's taking half of that food for her husband. I can see what you're saying though, Nick, because you kind of like, in a sense of like a class, some in some kind of like class solidarity, you know, you're not just like eliminating her from, you know, a job that she clearly needs, yeah. not just for herself, but like to for her husband. But yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, it's a, it's brilliantly like set up, but you do, I feel like that's maybe the one moment where like you not only are like a rooting. Uh, what was I going to say? Like you might be rooting like against them for being just 
going too Shitty. far a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think the, to kind of build on that a, a little bit, maybe, I don't know. I, I could be wrong here, but again, like, I don't know that um, he wants you to see anyone as particularly sympathetic. And I think like a subtle way to do that is with Kevin. So obviously like his friend is, Although, you know, I, I think his friend, as you guys have said, he's a central figure. You've only you only see him twice, but he's also somewhat of a sympathetic figure. He's look, you know, he, he's trying to help his friend out and and everything. And he makes it clear that he has interest in the daughter. But Kevin, like, completely doesn't give a shit and, and goes It's the first opportunity he has, like, makes a move on her. And I wonder if that's like a subtle way to show that he's a little devious as well. But the flip side of that is that the friend was only picking Kevin because he thought he could trust Kevin to not be that guy. You know what I mean? So it's like, I don't know. They're both kind of shitty. Also, I was questioning the age of that fucking daughter too. That was, that seemed a little, little dicey. So I think to build off of what Steve is talking about, and I think it can even lead to a really bad reading of this movie is Kiwoo, Kevin, his first ambition when he takes this job is that he's going to make enough money to go to university next year. I and mean, that's explicit what he, explicitly what he says is he doesn't feel like this document is a forgery because it's going to be real within a year. But then later, his ambition changes to, I'm going to marry her as soon as she goes to college, and I'm going to hire this fake family to pretend to be my family, and I'm going to become the owner of this place. And so there's this reading of this film that could be like the Icarus story that he had everything for him, that he should have just followed the capitalist mode. He got his big break, but he was just too greedy and he wanted too much. If he would have just settled, he would have gone to college, gotten his good job and gotten his good paying career. And I think that's where it gets to. And I happen to look this up, why this was on the best movie of the year list for people like Barack Obama and Elon Musk. Yeah, because you can really make this bad reading. Yeah, no, I, I didn't, I, I, I did, I have seen it being on like, you know, it, yeah, on like Barack Obama's top movies list. I was going to say something about that, but I lost it. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you definitely can see, I think that was part of my question before of when Kevin first enters the house, he obviously has, you know, when he's, I think the, I think part of it is when he's just forging the document. He hasn't seen the house, hasn't seen what could be. Right? What the other so side looks like, yeah. Exactly. And so it's almost like he's like poisoned or he's, you know, sees this, the top of the hill. Like he wants to be at the top of the hill. Like he could go to university and get a decent job and so on and so forth. Or he could be at the top of the fucking hill. Yeah. And I, I hate to be the person that keeps building on this story, which I actually hate this interpretation. But he is shown as being an incredibly capable English tutor, and the woman yeah. looks at his credentials and doesn't care about the credentials. He only cares, or she only cares that he's been recommended by this previous tutor. So there is this theoretical reading where if he would have just kept his discipline, another great capitalist desire, kept his discipline, he would have just been um, a contributing member of society. So, so you're saying like from the Barack Obama, Elon Musk perspective, it's like <clears throat> kind of like a know your place kind of tale, right? Yeah, which it gets to my sort of big critique about this movie is it doesn't really have a solid positive message. So it's really easy to build your own message onto it. 
Yeah, I mean, you could you could say that it's the overarching kind of theme of the movie being like this kind of class, kind of class warfare between a, you know a very poor family and a very wealthy family, and kind of you know what would you do? Like, how far would you go to you know to replace them or to be them? And I think that's like kind of the the message that most people seeing this probably get. But I guess what you're saying, Levi, is that there isn't much beyond that. It's kind of a little bit hollow. Yeah, it's really easy. And there's nothing stopping people from having the Icarus tale retold to them. Yeah, And that, I mean, I, I also have other reasons for not liking it. I mean, I have my own idiosyncratic quirks that I don't expect to be entertained by a movie like this. So I'll leave that as an aside. But well, yeah, I, th- I did not care for this movie. Well, and I think the other complication with that is, is yeah, you, you have a, you, you have the conflict between the Parks and the Kims, the rich, the rich and the, the working class and poor, but then you also have the conflict between the two poor families, and there's no solidarity between those two. They, they obviously just want to kind of, like, destroy the other one to make sure that they can continue to survive, which you can understand, but it it's still, you know, he doesn't have a sympathetic eye for that, that class, that class solidarity. Yeah. It's, it's all so cynical. I mean, the Kim mother is asked, you know, you're my sister. We should be in solidarity. And she immediately says, I'm not your sister. But then the moment the tables are turned, she uses the same language says, sister, we should be together. And that woman immediately says, you know, I'm not your sister. Yeah. You know, there is no concept of solidarity whatsoever in this movie. I mean, you could, I don't want to say the blame isn't the right word, but th- they get that, at least in America, you know, media and our structure of you, you don't want, like everyone is going to step on your throat. Like if you don't do the stepping first. And so it's, you have to be that way or they'll do it to you. And which is why you don't see as much class solidarity in anywhere, you know, anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely true. And I guess the question that I would ask just in this line, and sorry, Evan, if we're getting you off track a little bit. No, no, it's fine. But, um, you know, is just like, is exposure of, you know, these kind of elements of society and contradictions enough, right? Like, I think the director came out and said, like, look, I'm making this for entertainment, right? So, like, he's, you know, exposing some of these things, but he's not offering a solution, right? So, is this something like this the best piece of like, art, we'll call it that, you know, us is like, you know, hopefully, you know, amateur communist educators or organizers in various capacities, is this kind of the piece that we would use to actually agitate and propagandize around like exposure is there, right? But is there a message here on that would inform organizing beyond just like, hey, these class contradictions exist, you know? I think to sort of undercut the reading that I made earlier, the sort of Elon Musk, Barack Obama reading is that I believe the director does not want us to come away with that arc. He wants us to see this as completely negative. Mm -hmm. He doesn't offer a solution or provide a framework for how we're supposed to be interpreting it in a positive sense. So it's really easy for these people to build frameworks, but it's also possible for educators on the left to build their own frameworks. So I guess it would be sort of like pushing it back and saying, in what ways, if any, would this be a useful insight? And this is where I sort of falter. Because I, I just don't see this as being incredibly useful if it's going to be considered a piece of propaganda. I, I mean, I think this is the problem, which I think 
you may have we may have mentioned before offline is that's it's kind of like the inherent problem. So one thing I, I forgot to mention at the top, which I like to do, is so this movie cost fifteen million dollars to make. There was a budget. It made two hundred and sixty three million dollars. Like that's a blockbuster. That's a yeah. lot of money. It's very profitable film. It won lots of awards. I'm sure sold lots of DVDs and you know enabled um, June Hu to make more movies. You know, getting more budgets. But inherently, with this, like with any of these, I say the last like five years, you have. I, I feel like I say this like every episode or like any episode where there's a movie where like there's class dynamics that are very intentional is that can you really expect as a director to really have a real message, whether it be revolutionary or class consciousness or whatever it is, when your goal is simply to make a profitable movie. And I know this could lead to a, uh, <laughs> a long, uh, a long discussion, but just like, you know, briefly I want to mention that you can feel free to, to chime in. But I think that is at the core of this movie too, is that, he wasn't making a revolutionary movie to be anything more than a movie. And that's it. So like he, he directed Snowpiercer, right? I mean, do you yeah. think that's more of a revolutionary message than this? Honestly, I think it might be. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think it is as well. I mean, it, it, there's, it's also a much a better movie. More, it's a lot more obvious class structure in that movie, I think. And there is solidarity in that movie. And there is yeah, like there actual is. like revolution in the sense yeah. of of the... Different, yeah. I I love that movie though, actually. Yeah. So, what did that movie box office? Snowpiercer budget forty million made ninety. Ooh, not as big. No, and it came out before this one. Yeah, two thousand thirteen. So, so yeah. he wasn't nearly as. If it came out after Parasite, it probably would have made five hundred million. Yeah, because it had Chris Evans in it. It had like you know there was, it had a. I think Tilda, Tilda Swinton, Swinton. She was in it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah. But I mean, that's just kind of like how I kind of, I kind of just like put that like kind of note in my pocket when I watch movies like The Menu and um, Glass Onion or like uh, whatever. Like that's just Hollywood is obviously looking to capitalize monetarily off of the idea of these politics. And I don't necessarily think that this is maybe the same case as like a menu or one of those other movies, but probably so Yeah, that, you know, it's profitable. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about this movie as well is I, I think, I think we're all kind of getting at this point, but different people can watch this and have totally different opinions of it. Right. I mean, I know I have a, a liberal friend who's relatively well off and, and they, they watched it and they were really sympathetic to the park family <laughs> And at the end, I was like, I was like, don't you think it's disgusting that they just left them there to die? And they were like, no, they just had to protect their family and get away from the, from all the, you know, get away Mm -hmm. from the danger. And I was like, Jesus Christ. So I, I mean, maybe that's intentional, maybe not, but you know, like you said, he's got to make money. So he probably wanted this to appeal to different people in different ways. That's funny because I was asking some friends throughout the week after I watched it the first time and sort of giving my negative review of it. And one of my friends told me that her relative, who was very well-to-do, was really shattered by this movie and started reconsidering what her wealth was and how it was hurting people. So it is it is this sort of Warshak test or blank canvas, but I think it has some possibility 
for propaganda uses. I just think it's so incredibly narrow because how many incredibly wealthy people are going to view this and be shook by its politics? I think it those are the people rare. who gave it Academy, the Academy Award, right? That's the yeah. I mean, do you think Barack Obama and Elon Musk were shaken to their core? I mean, <laughs> no, those are the same laughing. people, right? They're laughing. And I, I think that's actually a point to make on this. I think a lot of this was actually meant to be pretty funny. I remember laughing, and I don't know if it was because it was inappropriate, but then I, I started looking up whether or not this was a comedy, and a lot of people actually disagreed. It's got a comedy tag. It's got a comedy tag, though, I think, if you look it up on, like... Black comedy, I guess you would call it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah like there are individual scenes, like when they find the underwear, and she, the guy whispers to her, like, and she's like, what? Drugs? Can you believe that? And it's like, well... Yeah, I guess so. It was just so ridiculous that it was funny. Or the violence is so over the top at the end that it's almost comical, like with the hatchet and the kicking in the face down the stairs. Yeah. Well, that's like I might also- be saying more about myself than anything here. <laughs> well, I think some of those things, I, was, I don't remember what movie I did recently where it was like you're laughing at things that, you know, you're like kind of laughing at the misery of like rich people, like maybe like the menu it was. I don't know. And I don't know. I don't see anything wrong with that. You can laugh at triangle of sadness when they're all shitting on themselves. Yes, maybe maybe it might have actually been that one that I was that was because that was more recently. But so the, the the sort of like the next piece of this movie that I think is like worth discussing too, which also brings back that like the higher like the higher ground that the parks live on versus the Kims is when they discover that the old housekeeper or keeper of the house has her father stashed away in their hidden North Korea nuke bomb, you know, bunker, um, you know, because he owes loan sharks money. He can't pay them. And it's so bad. I mean, that he has to. It was her husband, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so, yes, I mean, it's, that was the kind of like where the movie I felt like kind of, took a little turn for like, you know, where I think it's also says like black comedy thriller where it's like, what did you expect to see in the basement? Uh, you know, it could have been like the, the, the parks family, the father had some kind of like sex dungeon. I don't know, something, something messed up, but yeah. So yeah, there were two quick things I noticed or I've learned since I watched the movie about that. So it talks about how they got the loan sharks and he was being hunted down and there were phone calls every day. And he says it was because of the Taiwanese bakery that they tried to start. And that was something that the other family, I guess, avoided because they were not hounded by loan sharks. They were relatively okay after the loss of that bakery. And it's when that bakery is mentioned that they're all revealed by accident. And then the other thing is apparently a reconstruction of this basement is currently touring the United Kingdom as a South Korean culture uh, attache. And people are taking like selfies with it. And then that just gets me back to the first question of like, who is interpreting this movie? Who would want a selfie in this dungeony, disgusting basement? Like, wh- what kind of mind thinks that's worthwhile? You're forgetting how classy us English people are, Levi. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, that 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 strikes me as very like. There was like some subtle like nods like North Korea and like a little bit after that with the well, first off the the bomb shelter but i think when they're like fighting over the phone later too i think like there's a joke of like you know i could launch the nuke like you know from from north korea or something i feel like 
the person who would want to see that is, I don't know, like the, the same people who apparently from in like the fourth season of stranger things, they filmed a bunch of pieces at like a prison from like Nazi German, like during the world war two, during the Holocaust. And they were using it as like an Airbnb before, like it became public. Mm-hmm. And they're like, maybe we shouldn't do that. That's bad. But people were staying at like a prison that was used during like the Holocaust. So I think there's some fucking twisted people who will do that kind of stuff. I, think I mean, the there's same Holocaust people for, the same people that voted for Boris Johnson are taking selfies. In that. <laughs> I guess. But I mean, like I think whole- it's just like this whole detachment from like, you know, we're talking about how hard it is to actually craft some kind of like message around this because there's no, like, there's nothing explicit around it. Right. And it's just people looking to consume more culture, right. Without doing anything about it right like oh this is a cool message and a cool depiction and i just fucking move on with my life you know like there's no internalizing any or thinking about any kind of class message or anything like that that could be coming out of this it's just consumption for consumption's sake and this is just another commodity or an artifact that i can go take a fucking selfie with you know yeah i'm sorry evan if you don't like swearing on this podcast no no you're good no (laughs) okay sorry no that's uh no uh, yeah go ahead even to take the explicit political action that's happened under this. So I guess in February, semi-basement apartments were banned because somebody had drowned or there was a flooding similar to the plot of the movie. And these were called parasite basements, even in discussion of the law. And that's just like... Did you read any of that law, Levi? (laughs) No, not at all. They've been banned, but the people who own them have 20 years to convert them. So, I mean... okay. That that fits perfectly with what I was just about That's to say. That neoliberal capitalism at its fucking finest. Yeah. yeah. So they're looking at a very specific symptom. They're saying they have a fix for it. They don't want you to look at the details. And they say everything's okay now. We have no more parasite basements. We don't need to think critically about this depiction anymore. It's like the tenure- well, that wasn't the problem. The problem was class. Yeah. It's the whole system. It's like the 10 year window to negotiate down drug prices, right? That like Biden is saying, oh, like we got all this control over, you know, prescription drug prices, right? When like there's more than enough time for, you know, another administration to come in and overturn that or whatever it may be. Yeah. Oh, man. But the, the I guess like the, the, like the, the one, the, well, there's something else I was thinking about with the, like with the basement too is, I, does does the father? I don't I don't know the character's name. Who's like living in the basement? He like he's having a conversation. I think with the Kim father about like living down there, and he's like sort of like resigned himself to just living in this, you know, a, a parasite basement. Like that's just his life, and he doesn't have. He's no longer has any aspiration, whereas the Kim family does. And so I feel like it's. I don't know, like, do you eventually just get beaten down so much that you just give up? Well, I think it's that and his motivation to avoid loan sharks, right? Yeah, I guess dying would probably be less less good. Yeah, but it was beyond that, though, wasn't it? Like you're saying, Evan, like, and I, I think Steve's right, too. But then it's also that additional process of, like, where he's actually, like, kind of worshiping Mr. Park, right? And, like, yeah. thanking thanking him for his sustenance and shit, even though he has Elon no idea that he's stand down there. Yeah, yeah. Looking the boots. Yeah, he was saying like the whole thing with him like doing uh, Morse code on the lights. Or no, not Morse code. Like turning the lights on for him when he's coming in from the basement. Yeah, he was doing Morse Morse code on the with the lights. Yeah, right. He was saying like thank you and all this other shit. 
Yeah, he was pretending to have motion sensor lights specifically for Mr. Park. You think he would have, well, I was going to say like he wouldn't know this, but they just like bought the house from some like famous designer. So like it could have had that and he wouldn't have known. Not like he would actually pay attention. He just has a fancy house. Doesn't doesn't make any difference. But the, the yeah, so I think we, we talked about this a little bit before, but sort of like the unraveling a bit of the movie is kind of when they're stuck in the house. The Kim, the entire Kim family is like stuck in the house. I guess this isn't the very last kind of part of the movie, but near the end where they've were stuck in the house too. And you, you kind of get the heightened sense even more so here of how the parks view the, the parks view the Kim's family with, I think you, I don't know who mentioned, maybe it was you Steve earlier, like saying they're under the table and he's like referring to his smell. Like he knows his smell. Like he smells like a poor, you know, it's like he, yeah. he, he smells like the subway. Yeah. And then he does it again at the end, right? When he's getting his car key. Out, oh, and he's, yeah. He smells that was another, as well. That was another part I laughed, which again may say more about me, but where he's just like so disgusted by the smell of touching this recently deceased guy that he can barely get the keys to save his own family. Like, and his oh wife, God, that's so my Mr. Top. Kim smell in the car as well. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. He does. She does when they like go shopping or something for the carrying his per grocery card throughout the whole thing. Yeah. And the, the Kim family, when they first go into that basement, also mention how they're disgusted by the smell of the sub basement. Oh, interesting. So it's yeah, it's like the it's the constant like no one like you would think they would have some kind of solidarity with each other help out the husband do something, but this would threaten their own standing, if you will. Yeah. It's like in the American context, this would be race. If the people in the basement were for some reason black and they were white, they would be able to hold their nose while they go down there. But instead it's purely class in this instance. Yeah. I didn't look this up, but from, from, or at least like look into it deeply, but it does seem like there's very, more pronounced uh, class divides within some of the South Korean than than maybe even in the United States. I don't know if that's entirely true from my very brief looking into it, but it doesn't seem surprising if that's actually what, you know, Junhu was going for of the really nailing those hatred of one another. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it goes towards that, this point, but the one kind of line of dialogue that stuck out to me was um when mr kim is like saying he's like they're rich but they're nice and then his wife says they're nice because they're rich and like i wonder if that's you know that kind of hit me because i think it's true you know you can i don't think all rich people are nice obviously but i think you can afford to be nice when you're rich and i wonder if that goes towards their relationship with with the previous housekeeper and and the person in the basement they can't afford to be nice to them because again like you said they're they've got a boot on their neck and they've got to survive so i think that sort of reminds me of what you were saying earlier about your well-to-do liberal friends is there's a reason that they sort of sympathize with the parks is because they're in the american context well-to-do liberal elites i mean they pay well they talk about adjusting the pay for inflation you know they present all of the right things but they are still part of a structure that you know forces them to be exploitative in order to hold their position yeah and and they're almost 
in the way it's kind of presented is, well, they don't know. It's not presented this way. But like the way you could look at it is the parks are exploiting the cams. I think you said this a while back, Nick, was – you know they're they're all doing necessary jobs, but they're all being exploited by the park family. While at the same time, you know you could say that the Kims are exploiting them, or you know, you know, they're lying to them to get these jobs. But then they're doing perfectly capable jobs. And I would even argue that Jessica, as like the art therapist, is giving like this the kid like structure that he wasn't getting before. Well, it shows him like as being. I think prior to like, he's like, you know, and this is something that we didn't talk about either, but he's running around as like, you know, an indigenous American, like shooting, like, you know, uh, the suction cup arrows around the house. But then it shows after some time. And I think this is why she gets so endeared to um, Mrs. Park. But like you said, the kid is calmer, right? Like she, he's sitting on her lap painting, right? So it's a useful thing again, that, Jessica is providing to this household because the mother doesn't have the capacity to really deal with her, deal with her own kid. Right. Like she even says that she's just bullshitting and free forming and then happens to touch on an issue that's incredibly important to this child's psyche, almost as though she has like an innate talent. The mother doesn't seem who is only referred to as madam. I think throughout the whole movie is she doesn't seem she often like I feel like there's mentions before like how she has to like rest from you know the time that it would you know taking care of the kid and obviously the before the housekeeper the original one wasn't really helping or taking care of the child she was just cleaning up after him and the mother was just kind of letting him do his thing he actually needed like someone to pay attention to him the yeah. father obviously wasn't except for like his little radio communication and his little tent that they bought from America, which I think Levi mentioned before, just funny. I don't know which one of you did beforehand is that they bought the little, the little TP from America. From an American distributor from China. So probably from China. Yeah. yeah. And that kind of brings it back. I think to what we were talking about off the top, just in terms of the U S influences here, right? Like there's this made in America, there's this imagery of the, you know, of native Americans here, right? There's like this prizing, of English, um, studying English, tutoring in the English language, right? And that's important. And the other thing is like when they're talking about forging um, credentials, right, for art, it was like studying at the University of Illinois, right? So it's like America has placed on this pedestal within this rich capitalist family, right? And even within, even within, you know, the Kim family as well. Well, there are a bunch of mentions, like they often, all of their little scam references were all like random places in the United States that probably the the Park family had never heard of. But if like, oh, it's in America, it must be. It could have been right. like anywhere. It could have been like, you know, Gary, Indiana. They've been like, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> it like automatically lends validity to it, right? Right. Yeah, that's, that's the it, – it clearly there is a like big brother, almost little brother kind of way of looking at it. I think this is one of the articles, and I'll put this in the notes, which I found, which I didn't really mention too much at all. But there, this was before the movie came out. There's a pretty interesting article about the kind of the politics of Bong Joon Ho's Joon Ho's films, and it talks about which I think you also brought up at the beginning, Nick, is that the there is some sense of people in South Korea not understanding kind of how Korea got the way that it did. 
Like I think even people there may not learn about the fascist. Well, who, I'm sure it's not taught. I mean, no, I think we, like we're not taught about it. our genocidal fascistic history. You know what I mean? When it comes to, you know, native Americans and, you know, it's enslaved people here. So, I mean, I'm sure that like their education system is designed to, you know, kind of paint the U S in a very positive light. Right. Right. Exactly. It's like, Oh, the, 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 somehow the South Korea was became this beacon of, uh, of industry, but we know how on the backs of, of, whose backs that's uh, on, on top of. Yeah, just to sort of build on that, I mean, we have Ki Wu, Kevin, seems to be completely fluent in English and participate in the military. So even the poultry education that he's received has been Americentric or English-centric. And then um, speaking as somebody that knows almost nothing about Korean history, the one time that Korean history is mentioned, it's the Park Mother that talks about the great um, commander that surrounded the Japanese warship. And that's what they want to recreate with their son's birthday in the Kim family is just utterly mystified. They have no idea what she's talking about. And so she has to break it down and literally tell them what the shape was. And I just found that fascinating. So the Kim family has no idea about their own history, this own nationalism, whereas the Park family seems to be intimately familiar with this really deep nationalist figure of Korean history. And I just had no idea what to make of that. I mean, they went to university, I'm guessing, the mother and the father of the parks. And it's you don't know this, but I it probably implied that no one in the Kim family went to university. I would just assume. I don't know. No, I think that's a <laughs> that's a safe assumption. Um, I mean, I think it seemed like Kevin, the son had the best shot. And then we talked about, you know, all the times he took his entry exams and he didn't get into it, you know? Yeah. They're, they're not given again. I don't know enough about South Korea, but like you think of the United States where in a way like predatory loans for people to go to college, like you have to go to college so that you can, you have to spend a hundred thousand dollars so that you can then make it, you know, in, and we are seeing that that's less legitimate. Whereas it's, Still seems like that's something that that uh, Kevin wants to do. He, at the beginning, I think either Steve or Levi said that the his goal originally was to use this to go to college and to like make it the right way. Yeah, I mean, so <clears throat> what do we think happens to Kevin at the end, right? Because you're kind of painted this picture. Like I know, I know we there, there's that whole scene where you know kind of shit hits the fan ultimately, right? But Kevin seems to kind of be the central figure as it closes. Right. And his future is kind of left a bit uncertain, isn't it? Well, I mean, even at the end, his, his aspiration is still to go to college. Right. And the letter he writes to his dad, he's like, I've got a plan and I'll make another point in a minute, but he's like, I've got a plan. I'm going to go to college, get married, make lots of money and buy that house. So you can come out of the basement. So he still wants to go, but I mean, it doesn't really go into how much, brain damage he suffered right because he comes out of it and when he's getting arrested he's just laughing so he's obviously had brain surgery but then like he seems okay later i guess but i think the the point where it's interesting because he says i've got a plan and the point i was going to make that I, i just mentioned was that there's that point just after their house floods where his dad and again i guess i think this shows just how beaten down you can get as you know, a working class person trying to make it. His dad says, there's no point making plans for, for people like us. There's no point making plans because they're just going to fail. 
So you might as well not have a plan. And then the worst thing doesn't seem as bad. And I think that might foreshadow a little bit about like this plan he makes later and, and doesn't, you know, it, it probably is just a pipe dream still. Yeah, I think even building off of that, while his father's telling him that, he's literally just like gripping that stone with yeah. all of his being. And his father even asks him, like, why are you still holding on to this? And it, clearly it's a very on-the-nose metaphor about the capitalist dream. And as he's going over and dictating his letter that he's writing to his father that he has no way to give to him, we see the stone again being retrieved from the water. Or that's what I interpreted it as. So this is like... He's trying to draw a parallel that this person who's been beaten down, had his sister murdered, suffers severe brain damage, is somehow still gripping on to this great dream. You know, if there's any message to this movie at all, I think it's a very negative message against that interpretation, even though it's very subtle. Because I think you could still imagine that, yeah, maybe it is a pipe dream, but maybe it could happen. Mm -hmm. That's right. Maybe he should hold on to that. Yeah, I I saw something that said if he went to university and got kind of like the average median salary in South Korea, you know, around the time, you have to work something like 4,200 years to be able to buy that house. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So So maybe the the flat doesn't get flooded, but he's still renting. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it's just, it's, it, I guess it goes to show you like he could, you could have this plan and this whole thing to try and reach that like metaphorical like top, but still like the odds of, of that, of that success is astronomically low. Yeah. yeah I, I guess we, I guess we skipped to the very kind of the very end with that kind of his like sort of dream dreamish sequence for mm-hmm. Kevin but I, I I did find like the entire scene of like the party and like the murder like pretty incredible. And I guess the one thing I would we wonder what you all thought of that scene is the father finally kind of like snapping. Mm-hmm. And is it simply like he's making him dress up, you know, in this like indigenous you know outfit to be humiliated in front of lots of people, and it seems that was sort of my interpretation is that he's it's one thing to be like humiliated amongst his family or amongst other people of his own class, but he's being kind of paraded out as like a, a prop for rich people. Yeah. Yeah, He's, and he says explicitly, he's like, you know, when he starts actually trying to have like a human conversation, again, they go back to the subject of, well, you know, you're doing it for your wife. You love her, right? And like Mr. Park does not engage in that conversation at all. He's just like, Mr. Kim, you're getting paid double to be here. So basically just shut the F up and let's do this. You know what I mean? Like we're not friends. We're not on the same level at all. You're going to come do this with me because I'm paying you to do so. And that's all this and that's is. When, that's when he like adjusts the feather on the headset or on the head. And Mr. Kim tells him that's over the line. And Park says, what do you mean? Like he's clearly understands and mr kim says it's over the line he like pushes it back up under the headdress but it's very clear without any sort of deep knowledge that really kim is being pushed over this metaphorical line that mr park has been talking about this entire time and and i think it's also it, it kind of you have this situation where he's just lost his apartment right they've just had this flood and had to spend the night in a gym 
And then he's been called in impromptu just on a whim of this rich woman who wants to throw this last minute party for her kids. And there's just this expectation that it doesn't matter what's happening in your life. And I think that's part of his realization. These people is as quote unquote good as my relationship is with this guy. They have no consideration for me or what's happening in my life. They don't know what happened, but they don't care to ask either. And it's just like a culmination of all these things happening at one time. Well, then what really pushes him like to that point, Steve, about like, you know, him not knowing what's going on in his life and it really not mattering is like when he's basically trying to stop his daughter from bleeding. Like the parks don't know that that's his daughter, but in that moment, it doesn't matter. Like he's trying to save his daughter's life. And the guy's like, throw me the, you know, throw me the keys. We got to get out of here. And it's just like, dude, I'm not thinking about getting you out of here right now. You know, Um, then he just tosses it. But then what really shoots him over the edge is like, I think that kind of like reaction to the smell, like we've been, like we talked about earlier, right? Like when Mr. Park actually smells, um, I can't remember, you know, the, uh, Couldn't husband say. of husband of the late house, housekeeper or whatever we'll say, um, then he just gets kind of like revulsed and that's what like snaps. That's what causes Kim to snap. But yeah, it's just yes, like that building, right? There's some really interesting stage direction here. So it says, Mr. Park smells something and frowns. It's the dead housekeeper's husband's body odor. He holds his nose at the awful smell. Mr. Kim notices a fleeting moment, but it triggers something inside him. Mr. Kim picks up the toy axe from the ground and stalks Mr. Park. When Mr. Park hears Mr. Kim's footsteps and turns around, Mr. Kim swings the axe and plants it right between Mr. uh, Park's neck and shoulder. That's when we realize it's not the toy. It's a real axe. The one the cool guy used to chop firewood for the barbecue. We're not sure if Mr. Kim knew this, but it doesn't matter. All that matters is that it's stuck in Mr. Park's neck. Which is some interesting stage direction. I don't know how many stage directions wallow in ambiguity like that. That's very specific. It's very specific. (laughs) (laughs) There's no way to... That's that's interesting because obviously there's there's no I don't remember there being a point where like they show a toy axe maybe I just like wasn't thinking I, I thought it was the kitchen cleaver but I maybe I was just assuming he was going to kill him no matter I what mean, the the toy axe is what they're holding when they're talking behind the bushes and there oh uh, okay. okay yeah but even when he's holding that it doesn't look like a toy axe and that I mean that kind of stuck with me I was like is he like these people are so rich they bought their son a real axe. Like I, I honestly thought it was a real axe. Even it's when stupid that American it. distributor screwed them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, send you this this axe. Yeah. So I watched this in 360p and I had to wait like every 30 minutes for 10 minutes of buffering. Oh, no. And I remember like being caught in the middle of this scene and like having to wait 15 minutes and coming back and thinking, wait, I thought he had a toy axe. I guess that gives you like the if you're like stopping like you're you're like probably thinking about those that moment longer right I guess inevitably but I, honestly like the way you're reading like the the this, the script and the stage direction it's almost I mean I wouldn't say it's like better but it like gives you a much deeper picture of like what they were trying to do yeah I especially love that line that it doesn't matter whether or not the axe was real. It's the idea that Mr. Kim truly wanted to murder this person, whether or not he thought the axe was actually going to murder them. The 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 last um, 
I guess maybe we can kind of go to some of like any last thoughts or, or pieces of it. One one note that I wrote down like immediately writing immediately after the movie was over was I know I think you said Steve like the you know they're not really picking someone for you to root for or anything like that. But what I wrote down was that it's kind of disheartening to see kind of the depiction of poor people or working people who have no way up as the bad guy or like the evil people who like kill the, you know, the rich capitalist or the rich people. And so I do think at least at the moment at the time of watching is I did feel like they were villainizing the poor people simply for like the culmination of like the actual murder. But, and then everything before obviously becomes kind of all with it. Like everything they did was now evil because of it. And I feel like it's the same a, occasional conversation I have with someone will say like, Oh, if there's a revolution, you couldn't like hurt the billionaires or like do anything to them because that's, you know, that's unnecessary violence, but like they're committing violence against all of us, like on a, on a day-to-day basis. I don't know if that's an exact <laughs> parallel, but they both kind of thoughts in my mind. It's it's funny that you use that as an example, just because I was talking to one of my like we'll call him progressive liberal, you know, like he's getting there, but very slowly, you know. Um, and we were talking about kind of like this idea of like political violence, right, and kind of like a scenario like that, you know. And I'm just like we're driving through like some you know town in like the uh, in Wisconsin. And, you know, we saw a homeless person. I'm like, that's violence that this person, this, that's violence inflicted by like the status quo, you know? So like, I mean, I, you can't speak, you can't control how that person might react given all of that, you know, build up over the years of when a moment actually kind of breaks out, you know what I mean? Cause that's just, again, it's just mounting years of violence, you know? Um, I, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's hard to, you, you can't dictate how these things are going to go. <laughs> you know? I, mean, I don't think the director was at all thinking, having any kind of consideration like that. No, this no. Is per, my own personal. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, again, how you interpret the end, right? Because that's definitely how my liberal friend interpreted it was like that they were the bad guys, but I was almost more sympathetic for them when he killed the, the, the billionaire because the guy obviously had no sympathy for this for Jessica who had, you know, looked after his son and, and calmed his his son down. Um and and so I was like, Yeah, fuck that dude. Like way to go, Mr. Kim. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean hundred percent agree with that. I, I, I guess it's just that the it seems like they were trying to vilify him despite what I would you could argue as was like a, aggression that was was um at least understandable if not yeah I was gonna say yeah. justified but maybe understandable is a better word so to tie this back to something that we were talking about earlier we were talking about how Mr. Kim really doesn't seem to be the head of his family but that sort of switches around at the end where his going into hiding allows him to take on all of the blame for the crimes and his wife and son can go on living relatively normal lives. And I just thought that was a really interesting switch off. So he murders Mr. Park, takes on the position of the housekeeper's husband, literally in the basement. And he spends the rest of his life 
living off of scraps from a German family upstairs and revering Mr. Park. I mean, he talks about how he's so sorry and writes these commendations to him, just like the housekeeper's husband. And again, it just gets back to like the family unit is just such a weird concept in this movie and what we're supposed to come away thinking about it. It's definitely very poetic in the sense that in his conversation with the housekeeper's husband, he's like, I would never, I don't understand how you could be this way. And then him ending up in that position is, yeah, it's kind of perfect, I guess. Ties it up pretty nicely. Um, but yeah, I don't know if anyone has any kind of any final thoughts on the, on the movie before we. There's just so much to talk about with it, you know, <laughs> like, it's just, I don't know. It, it was good. I mean, I actually enjoyed the movie. Um, just, I, I do, I still do struggle with like the political usefulness of it. You know, um, I think it's not useful in that, like, oh, you can say this is what the movie was saying explicitly, but to maybe like pick out examples have been like, hey, this is where solidarity actually would have helped everybody a little bit better. You know, it's showing you those class dynamics and you could kind of look at it that way, but it definitely takes a little bit more work outside of what the film is actually doing on its own, I, I think. Again, yeah, to sort of out myself, I think I would have enjoyed it way more if I understood Korean culture way more because I was reading articles about all of these jokes that were specific about Korean culture that were completely over my head. So I just found it to be very dry and dark and serious, um, which it was not even, I think, meant to be. It's just I didn't get most of it. It, it makes me want to go back and Evan, I don't know if you've ever seen I think it, one of his first movies is called The Host, or at least one of his first kind of feature films. It makes it, I've only watched that once, and it was a long time ago. It makes me want to kind of go back and watch that because I think that the message there is more of kind of environmental. But I, it'd be interesting to see what the politics of that are um, in comparison to um, Snowpiercer in this. So supposedly, The Host is, according to this article that I read from arena.org, which it looks like is an Australian paper. It apparently mm-hmm. kind of depicts that movie as being more political in some sense, which okay. is weird given that it's like a monster movie kind of thing, yeah. you know, and you wouldn't think of it that way, which almost in some sense, I know some of the movies I've done or watch where, you know, you might get more politics out of a movie where like they weren't trying. So obviously like this movie is clearly obviously injecting, like the plot of the movie is like the hierarchy of, of the society. So right. the host, I, yeah, the host, I haven't seen that one in a while. And I feel like my viewing experience of that was like, not very good. It was like on a computer and I could, the subtitles like weren't, I don't know. It would be good to watch that one again, but I don't know. Did you like the movie, Steve? Did you think? I, I think I, I think I enjoyed it, but again, it's been a while since I watched it. So oh, I mean, I, Parasite. Oh, Parasite. Yeah. I did enjoy Parasite. Yeah. Yeah. It's the second time I've watched it, and I, yeah, I, I've liked it both times. Yeah, I, I would fall in where I enjoy it, but I feel like I do see what you're saying, Nick. Whereas, like, the movie is good, I guess, in its own thing to some extent, but has, I would say, you know, a lot of flaws to it. Yeah, yeah we wish it did more, I guess. <laughs> but that's, you know, what it is. It is what it is. Yeah. 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 I think- to draw on what you were saying about a monster movie, I think this movie even winks at the fact that it can't do nearly as much as that kind of movie. Like Kevin is constantly saying that things are symbolic 
Like yeah. we are self aware in that way. Right? That. Yeah. yeah, it's self aware that it's incredibly limited on the symbols and the message that it can actually portray. Yeah. The the host is I mean, I think that's generally too. Like I think of like some, you know, vampire movies or other movies like that where that somehow you have an idea, but you don't have to, you can like shield it with all the, you know, the horror or the action movies. I, I, I know I, generally too, I find that like horror movies tend in my take sometimes have like the most interesting politics just yeah. because of the way the I horror agree. movies are, are kind of meant to structure, but that's a whole, a whole nother conversation that uh, eventually one so day. You, What's are that? Are you a big fan of the last of us? I do like that show. I, I enjoyed it. I never played the video game. But yeah, I, that movie also has some political... Someone asked me recently, I don't remember who it was now, who to do a, a, like an episode or two on that first season. Well, I mean, it's a allegory of why Palestine needs to be kept in its place. Written by a settler Israeli. Oh Jesus! I did not know. That. I didn't. I yeah. didn't know. That. Oh, yeah, that that was my joke. Is that it's a right wing um, horror show about the benefits of family, true family, against <sighs> um, un, unfeeling terrorists that need to be kept in their place. Oh man! Now I need to. You, you might have to join me for that. For that. I need to read more about this now. I'm gonna do that now. Actually, see that's that, that. I feel like I need to watch it with that in mind because that definitely puts a whole nother whole nother yeah, spin on it. I found that out after playing the games multiple times and watching it. And I was like, Oh, cause it keeps coming back to like these themes of like cycles of violence and like shit like that, you know? And it's just that same kind of language that you hear around, um, that conversation as well, for, oh, at least from yeah. one side of it. So <laughs> yeah, a lot of dehumanizing yeah. and humanizing people in families, even in untraditional families, you know, like the gay family in Tel Aviv. I mean, it, wherever they are in their post-apocalyptic America, the, Tel Aviv, Massachusetts, or New England was that what it was supposed to be? <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's I, I wouldn't say like that ruins it, but that definitely like makes it yeah, puts a new spin on it for sure. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, you know anyone who hasn't seen Parasite by now, I think it's still worth a worth a watch. Just kind of keep in mind some of the 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 flaws of the movie, perhaps, and you know I think you can still enjoy it for what it is, but. I would recommend to other people to see some of his other films. I've also heard that uh, Memoirs of Murder, which I haven't seen, which is another one of his movies, is supposed to be very good. Was that, that was his first movie, wasn't I it? I believe so, yeah. And it's supposedly very, um, very good. Um, but yeah, so uh, again, I had uh, Nick, Steve, and Levi from uh, Intervention Pod. Thank you for all for uh, coming on and talking about Parasite. Yeah, thanks Thank for having you. us, man. It's fun. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. So as, uh, as always, you can uh, check out Left Up Ejector on all your platforms and check out Intervention Podcast on the same platforms, I would assume. And you can see all the links and such in the notes. So give a, a listen, a subscribe and a like, and we will catch you next time. Mm-hmm.